0: Will Miami's coast finally be properly girded against storm surge? The state just took control of our busiest local toll roads and Nicaragua's dictatorship outlaws the Jesuits. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll look at new ideas finally being proposed for building stronger protection along Miami-Dade County shoreline against hurricanes and storm surge. It could still take a decade before you see any of it though. We'll also examine why Miami-Dade's expressway authority will now be replaced by a state agency and why that actually matters to you. And we'll ask what happens to Nicaragua now that its last bastion of free thought has been banished. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. We think we're hurricane experts in South Florida, especially at this peak time of the season. But climate change has changed how we focus on hurricane damage. And in the 21st century, that means storm surge. The deadlier walls of water that stronger and wetter hurricanes spawned by global warming now throw at us. That means low-lying coastal areas like Miami-Dade County now have no choice but to put stronger storm surge barriers in place. Five years ago, the county and the federal government started brainstorming those defenses, but the effort got derailed in large part because the huge ramparts the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers proposed were just plain ugly. Now the county and the Corps have gone back to the drawing board, and the ideas that are emerging are more a hybrid of man-made and natural walls that are considered not just more aesthetic, but more effective. Great. But the question now is, how much longer do we have to wait? What are your thoughts about protecting Miami-Dade's coast from storm surge? Call us at 800 743 9576 or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me in the studio is Alex Harris. She's the Miami Herald's lead climate change reporter. Also with us is James Murley. He's Miami-Dade County's chief resilience officer. Welcome to you both.
1: Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here.
0: So, Alex Harris, let's start by reminding folks why storm surge protection, which is something we could very well be experiencing here between now and November, is so imperative now in the age of global warming.
1: Right, well, of all parts of a storm, I think most people tend to think the wind can cause the most damage. After all, that's how we yeah. n- categorize our storms. But storm surge actually kills the most people and causes the most property damage. Water's heavier than wind, and these waves can get really, really tremendously high, as we saw on the West Coast after Ian.
0: After Ian, right. But speaking of Ian, that brings up the point that Miami, however, and cities on this Atlantic coast of the Florida peninsula, um, are they as vulnerable to storm surge, since the sea shelf on our coast is deeper than it is on the Gulf side of the peninsula, where, where, as you just mentioned, we saw such awful storm surge last year during Hurricane Ian?
1: So it's a little different over here. Um, if anyone who's gone diving or fishing out here knows, you don't have to go too far off the east coast of Florida before it drops and it right. gets really, really deep. Uh, versus on the west coast, we have somewhat of a shelf that lasts several miles of relatively shallow water. Right. Um, that shelf gets the storm gets storm surge really high for a long period of time and can really swamp in making the west coast more at risk for storm surge than we are our risk isn't zero it's still high um, but we can still face quite a bit of it just doesn't quite have as long to back up or ramp up before it crashes right
0: but as you point out either way we're obviously at risk here so why then did planning for this new level of storm surge fall by the wayside in miami-dade county five years ago
1: we started planning, like you said, in 2018 for this. but uh, And we got all the way to the finish line. There was a plan, the Army Corps of Engineers, which is the construction company basically for the federal government came up with a plan that they thought was going to be the best possible way to armor the shoreline of miami-dade county but it had some parts in it that regular uh constituents didn't like people didn't like the concept of big tall walls either through the middle of biscayne bay or the middle of their neighborhoods they liked other parts of it they liked Mm. the idea of money toward elevating buildings floodproofing businesses hospitals uh critical infrastructure like police stations and Um, fire stations but they didn't love the concept of gray walls protecting them from the coast and so that was such a point of contention that the mayor uh, Miami-Dade Mayor uh, Daniela Levine-Cava actually pulled the plug on that study and sent us back to the drawing board again.
0: Right so aesthetics sort of played a a, a big role in the whole thing. It (laughs) is (laughs) Miami. Mr. Murley what brought the county and the Army Corps of Engineers back to the table then to start brainstorming this effort again?
2: Well, well, thank you. Um, You know, I I would point out that before the opportunity presented itself three or four years ago to work with the Corps, the county was already uh, preparing for storm surge by the way we uh, protected our critical facilities. Mm -hmm. You could go and see uh, facilities like the Virginia Key Water and Sewer Plant and other things that we rebuilt, uh, taking into consideration both sea level rise and storm surge. So that was already beginning. But the CORE's opportunity would presented itself after Hurricane Irma allowed us to look more comprehensively at what kinds of uh, projects that the CORE was willing to cost share with us uh, might be in our future. And uh, as you both described, uh, the original outcome just didn't fit uh, with uh, Miami-Dade County, all the values that we hold, both protecting the environment, protecting our people and property. Uh, we need a balance. And so by... The mayor met with the assistant secretary of the armor Army Michael uh, Connor who's in charge of the core activities na- nationally and with his agreement uh, we reset the process we had one year to go over our options and last last week um, the assistant secretary and the mayor agreed that we'd uh, restart this the, the feasibility study looking at a stronger set of nature-based based uh, Projects right uh, that fit us. Uh, we're still going to look at structures that make sense, but a much stronger effort right. initially at looking at nature-based features.
0: And let me just ask you real quickly, Mr. Murley, did did what we s- s- did what we saw last year after Hurricane Ian on the southwest coast, the awful images of storm surge there, did that make getting the the county and the and the Corps of Engineers back together on this even more urgent?
2: Well, I think I think certainly the the visuals of uh, what Hurricane Dorian, you know, uh, several years ago in the Bahamas, and uh, and then our Southwest Coast, the neighbors, you know, Mayor Mayor Kava went over personally with our uh, emergency management teams to assist and provide assistance there. It certainly heightened the attention to this one part of a very complicated. Set of flooding issues that we deal with in Miami Dade. Right. So uh, by addressing storm surge, we don't do away with all flooding issues, but we have right. to have an integrated approach. Right. So
0: what's different now from five years ago in terms of the ideas being presented? If if the old notion of the big seawalls has been laid aside, what's replacing it? I mean, we often hear, for example, yeah. uh, as you said, of more nature-based solutions like coral reef fortification.
2: Definitely. We want to look at layers of defense, starting out with the natural coral reefs. Uh, as, just as the wave advances off of the deep ocean, as Alex was describing, and, and starts advancing towards the barrier island, we want to look at every opportunity to reduce the energy of that wave. That's what causes the destruction and endangers people. Mm-hmm. So the, starting with the coral reef, there's a, there are going to be a, a exploration and of uh, artificial reefs between the coral reef and the beach. The the continued maintenance of of Miami Beach, including the dune and the boardwalk, uh, perhaps enhancing that. Features on the backside, nature-based features on the backside of the barrier islands, and then moving across the bay to the mainland. The major feature that was dismissed in the original plan and does not reappear in the new plan is structures along the mainland shoreline and Gates on the canals right. that empty uh, the stormwater from the, big, the west. The those big, the cause big walls, the most yeah. disruption. Mm-hmm. And there's, there, there, we've dropped those from the plant. So, Alex,
0: how then do we go about? I, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, "Yeah, these nature-based solutions sound great," but how do you actually go about building coral reef? fortifications building mangrove fortifications
1: yeah so it's a different process than you know the structural elements that uh, Jim was talking about uh, but it still involves building you have to plant these mangroves you have to build in a lot of cases hybrid situations uh, University of Miami is doing a lot of research on how to combine man-made elements with natural elements for artificial coral reefs okay that ar- are, okay yeah. a lot
0: of this would be artificial then when we're talking about the coral reef component
1: I think some of it is still open we don't mm-hmm. none of this has been nailed down yet but that's right. definitely an idea that I know that they've all been talking about
0: uh-huh. And, and, and would you would you agree, Mr. Murley, then, that, that a lot of this would be sort of man-made when we're talking about things like uh, coral reef, but also this would take a lot of mangrove uh, planting, well, no?
2: Absolutely. We want to take advantage of what nature gave us, right? I mean, in maintaining and enhancing our beach, which we've done for decades, we start with a natural beach. And in the southern part of the county, we still have very valuable mangrove forests, and one of the new elements of the uh, restart is a much stronger exploration that uh, we are will engage with with our environmental uh, experts at the division of environmental resource management with the core to use the mangroves to uh, provide a, essentially a greater level of protection to the communities to the west
0: right and i and i wanted to ask both of you too I mean, one of the things I noticed when I went out to do reporting after Ian on on the Gulf Coast last year was just how badly local governments had allowed things like mangrove protection to be deteriorated over on that side of the peninsula. Is it going to take more um, more proactive, legislating, uh, ordinance creation, things of that sort over here to make sure that that kind of mangrove and natural uh, barrier defenses aren't as deteriorated on this side of the peninsula, Alex?
1: Yeah, you've touched on something that I think has been an issue in South Florida, where environmentalists and planners recognize the benefit of mangrove and living shorelines that are a combination, maybe a hybrid of of a steel and concrete uh, seawall, along with natural elements. But they're not always super popular with people who live in those areas. We've seen Living shorelines are difficult to permit in some cases. They're not popular with residents in other cases. Um, in all in all opportunities so far, we've we've heard these conversations from planners saying that we might need to tweak the way we look at the planning, and we might need to talk about okay, well, if we're going to build mangroves here. You know, planners want to build out into the bay, but environmental regulators don't want you to build out into the bay and lose valuable seagrass habitat. They want you to build back onto land, and nobody wants to give up valuable waterfront land in South Florida. So there are permitting challenges, and there are conversations about priorities that we as a community need to have when we're looking forward.
0: Right. Mr. Murley, you were, you would agree with those challenges?
2: Certainly. Uh, I mean, we, our shorelines have been altered over the years, and we have to recognize— um, that in many places the the introduction of seawalls have changed the way nature inter- interacts with how we build seawalls, how we allow for a mixture of of hard and soft or green infrastructure. Right, that's what we have to explore. We'll probably have our pilot projects mostly on our county and city parks uh-huh. to find out where the right blend of of shoreline protection okay. uh, can be maintained.
0: I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about new ideas for protecting Miami's coast against storm surge. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Alex Harris, from a storm surge mitigation perspective then, do do experts agree that these new ideas that Miami-Dade County and the Army Corps are presenting are the way to go?
1: That's a really good question, and the answer is the science isn't settled yet. We don't Mm -hmm. know for sure. I I think some of the initial studies that we've shown have proven that, you know, a a plain seawall that maybe is five or ten feet cannot be replaced by a handful of mangroves. You need a pretty good decent amount of just mangroves. I would think. Uh, (laughs) Meters and meters and meters of them to cut the energy, the wave energy, like Jim was talking, from Mm -hmm. a large wave to something smaller. Um, But there is active research ongoing. I know the University of Miami and its wave tank, Florida International University, and some environmental nonprofits are all marshalling their resources to start looking at the impacts of using mangroves or using coral reefs as a way to armor the shoreline. It seems like the strongest science suggests that combining both together mm-hmm. in hybrid solutions avoid some of the worst environmental impacts of just a plain gray solution, right. while also keeping a level of protection that's higher than just having three mangroves in your backyard. Not
0: good point. So Mr. Murley, where then do things go from here? Are we embarking now on another study? Um, and if so, how long will that take before a concrete plan is then decided on? And you know, when could we finally see these new storm surge defenses in place?
2: It's definitely going to happen in phases. And it's going to happen two ways. We are one of the things that we really uh, push for and is has been part of the restart is we're going to see this one planning process much more integrated with the other work that the Corps of Engineers is doing on our landscape. We have more Corps of Engineers projects than any other county in the United States. And they they have a tendency to stay in their silos. And we're going to Force. Uh, we're gonna encourage and, and I, I, I see willing partners to integrate these projects from from activities like on the village of Key Biscayne, wh- where you could get a study that doesn't take as long and, and project improvements could come online sooner.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We'll take our time on any structural proposals that potentially could have an impact on the environment. Okay. Those will be studied most thoroughly but where we see short term solutions Mm-hmm. we will find the right path forward. It might not be the funding of this particular study. It might be something that we get from the uh, state of Florida. Okay, but we're going to have an integrated approach.
0: We have Richard on the line here in Miami. Uh, he's wanting to know, what about porous concrete as a barrier? Uh, Richard, what, what specifically are you talking about there?
4: Yes, there's concrete that absorbs rainwater, and that means that the water doesn't have to go into the sewer system, get pumped out uses the land that's below the concrete, parking lots, plazas. The city hasn't put that in the zoning code, which is a simple thing they could do tomorrow. I've spoken to the people of the city of Miami. They won't give a reason why, but I know that it costs a little more for developers, and developers don't want to spend the money. It's the only reason I can think of why they haven't
0: instituted it now. Well, thanks, Richard, for for pointing out that, that new aspect of this. Alex, I'm not really familiar with this. What what can you tell us? Yeah,
1: it sounds like Richard's talking about porous pavement, which is so if you, ah, instead okay. of just having, you know, bricks in your parking lot or asphalt, you have a, a, a concrete that can, you know, drain that water and hold it in a storage directly underneath the water. Unfortunately, I mean, th- those are useful solutions in a lot of places and something South Florida should probably look into. But um, as our groundwater levels are also raising, along with sea levels, uh, those solutions might, you know, become less useful uh, in more places in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: Mr. Murley, how, if... If at all, would these storm surge protections also help Miami-Dade with the more regular problem of rainstorm flooding and king tides and things of that nature? I think this, the sort of things that Richard was just pointing out.
2: Yes, yeah, that's what that's very important. We have to continue to understand that we have the short and long term vulnerabilities. And uh, with the experience that Fort Lauderdale had just months ago with that intense rainstorm and flooding. Uh, We've already instituted a new uh, uh, flood uh, reaction program that the Department of Emergency Management will be heading up to be uh, able to address those kinds of events Mm -hmm. because they're going to happen with more probability and frequently than the storm surge. So we're going to have to have those uh, processes in place. We also will continue to work with the South Florida Water Management District on improvements to the canal system. It is our major drainage system, and we can make some of those improvements uh, uh, more quickly than the long-term projects we're talking about.
0: Now, Alex, uh, just quickly, we only have about 30 seconds left, but another hurricane-related question before we go here. State emergency officials are watching a new tropical system near the Yucatan. What can Floridians expect from that storm next week?
1: Prepare for rain. That's the bottom line. Uh, we don't know how strong the storm is going to be or where exactly on the West Coast it might come ashore, but a one guarantee at this point basically is there'll be some rain. So good time to get your gas, uh, check the batteries in your flashlight, and make sure you're prepared for flooding.
0: All right, thanks. Alex Harris is the Miami Herald's environmental reporter and lead climate change reporter. James Murley is Miami-Dade County's chief resilience officer. Many thanks to you both. Still to come, Miami-Dade County's toll roads are no longer Miami-Dades. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Back in the 1990s, the state of Florida gave control of Miami-Dade County's busiest toll roads to... Miami-Dade County. The Miami-Dade Expressway Authority, or MDX, was created, and it's been managing the Airport, Dolphin, Don Shula, Gratney, and Snapper Creek Expressways and collecting their tolls ever since. That is until last week when Florida temporarily won a court battle to regain control of those toll roads with a new state authority, the Greater Miami Expressway Agency, or GMX. But what brought on the spat between the county and the state that's led to Florida's retakeover of our local expressways? More important, does it really matter who controls those roadways? Turns out, yeah. Does it matter to you? Do you drive these expressways regularly? Call us at 800 743 WLRN, 800 743 9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN investigative reporter par excellence, Danny Rivero. He's been following the MDX GMX lane switch, if you will. And he's here to help us understand what's behind it and what it means for our automobile choked metropolis. Danny, before we dive in here, I I wanna play two voices on opposing sides of this dispute. The first here is Miami-Dade Expressway Authority attorney, Gene Stearns expressing last week why MDX's control of the toll roads mattered. As Joni Mitchell saying, you don't know what you got until it's gone. And so the people of Dade County don't know home rule, but they're gonna know it when it's gone. Day County has more people than 15 states in the United States of America. Those 15 states have 30 United States senators. Day County has zero. Day County's power is the power of home rule And for 66 years, people have been trying to take it away. And now the question is, are they gonna get away with it this time? Okay, home rule being the operative uh, term there. The second voice here is Republican State Senator Brian Avila of Hialeah Gardens, who had this to say to you, Danny, in 2019, when he was a state representative and the legislature first proposed the state's retakeover of Miami-Dade's expressways.
5: I know that several, several of the uh, the commissioners mentioned, uh, and even some of the folks from the delegation mentioned that we need to reform MDX rather than dissolve it. Um, my argument is, we already did that in 2017, and they went a year without complying with state law. Uh, so clearly, they're not interested in any sort of reform. Um, at the end of the day, we want what's in the best interests, um, you know, of our residents of our community, and quite frankly, at this point, MDX has become more of a financial burden than a benefit to our community.
0: Okay, so he mentions MDX not complying with state law, etc. But Danny, remind us what really led to this clash between Miami-Dade County and the state legislature, including legislators from Miami-Dade, like Avila.
3: Right. Um, Strap in your seatbelts because it is a long one. (laughs) Um, But but this this really is a story in a lot of ways that's kind of the the frog in, in boiling water kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Because if you're driving around Miami, Miami Dade County right now, at this point we're used to all these toll roads. Right, we're used to being told at every pass. We're used to construction everywhere. We're used to the to the you know express lanes, the so-called Lexus lanes that that get congestion pricing and whatnot. Yeah. This did not used to be the case. So in in 2014, MDX the local authority, right? They doubled toll enforcement. So, so yeah. if you were driving from Kendall to downtown Miami, Hialeah to downtown Miami for work, your daily commute doubled. And this your d- your daily commute's tolls. The, yes, yes, it the the, yeah. the the tolls doubled. Yeah, and um, it really made a lot of people. Very angry at the time. Like I said, we're kind of used to it now, right? Yeah. We've gotten used to it, but, but at the time, it felt like overreach. It did feel like overreach. And yeah. and what 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 Senator Avila was saying was in 2017, Jeanette Nunez, who's now the lieutenant governor, she pushed through a law saying Miami Dade County reduce the tolls, mm-hmm. reduce the tolls. And they did not my mdx did not which is what which is what um avila was saying they did not reduce the tolls Mm -hmm. and then they added these these like um express lanes the the lexus lanes for congestion pricing taking away regular lanes for traffic that then actually made the traffic worse because people didn't want to pay more money to use those lanes so it made congestion worse and these things kind of escalated and it led to the point where state leaders started saying Hey, you're not listening. You're doing bad by the people in Miami-Dade County. We're going to take over.
0: Right. Now, Now you mentioned to me when we were talking about this earlier that it's no coincidence that politicians like Avila from out in Hialeah were some of the folks most displeased with MDX, right? Right. I mean, the you know, if you
3: live in, in the inner city of Miami, it's not going to affect you that much. If you live and work yeah. in somewhere like Kendall, it's not going to affect you very much. But for working class people, that are out on the fringes, out in the in the west, or in or in or in Hialeah or Kendall, the tolls doubled for residents, and you had you had the city of Hialeah do a, a resolution saying, "Hey, stop this." You're you're right. you're killing our
0: people here. And on top of the doubling of the tolls, it also felt like, especially in those days, if you were driving up and down the Dolphin, it felt like not only the tolls were doubling, but the amount of road construction that you had to navigate around was doubling too. Right. Well, because they doubled
3: the amount that they were collecting. <laughs> well, the, exactly. It was in like in a to- vicious cycle. In, in, yeah. in the tolls, then they then they started doing a lot of. Projects and in um, you know the the validity of some of those projects I think is up for debate. The the MDX said it was necessary, but it was you're paying more for your commute, and then your commute is worse because right. there's all this construction everywhere.
0: So. Uh- because of all this, the state, prodded by moves like Jeanette Nunez's, um, they they start the, the, the takeover effort, right. uh, Retakeover effort, I should say. And so, tell us about this dirt road in the Everglades and the clever way the state used it to stake its legal claim to take over <laughs> or retake over MDX. Right.
3: So so there's there's really two big laws that were passed in 2019. The state took over MDX in its current form, which is only in Miami Dade County. Uh huh. Right? Miami Dade has home rule. So legally they made the argument that because they have the strongest home rule authority of any county, and it is actually in law. The the county can dissolve state agencies here if they only operate in Miami Dade County. So uh-huh. Miami Dade said, No, 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 we're we're dissolving this new board and we're we're keeping MDX. So what just happened a couple months ago is the state said, Okay, you're gonna play that game. They added this tiny dirt road in 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 Big Cypress Swamp, mm-hmm. in, like in the Everglades essentially, uh-huh. which is technically in Monroe County. This is a place that's never going to be developed by everyone's right. admission. Where the commuters are only alligators. <laughs> yeah. right. They added this one little strip of dirt road and said, okay, now it's not just in Miami-Dade County. Now it's in Monroe County as well. Mm-hmm. Now the state can take
5: over. <laughs>
0: So what's the bottom line here in terms of how this affects us here in miami-dade as users of these toll roads are we really going to notice any difference with the change in management <laughs> um
3: I mean this is an interesting part of it I mean not really um on the on the day-to-day operation of this if you are a commuter you're driving to work you're going home for work you're going into the city to do whatever you're doing you're probably not going to be very affected by this right um, I, the, the what it is at the end of it this is raw power and politics this is a tug of war between the state right and and, and the local governments. And, you know, when you hear local officials talking about it, um, one of the things they, they want to say is, well, now the state is going to choose who, who picks the contractors for things.
0: Right. Because who, we are talking about, what, about $230 million a year in terms of toll revenue that, that, that that's being handled here, right? R- right. I mean, it's a lot of that's, money. That's not and, that's not a small amount. And, and yeah.
3: But what I what I was saying is some of the local officials, um, Jose Pepe Diaz, he's the chair of MDX, which might or might right. not still be, be in existence. Used in to be existence. a county commissioner, now he's. The mayor right. of Sweetwater. So, yeah. so he was talking the other day. He says now the state's going to decide who who pays the con who, who chooses the contractors. I don't think commuters really care yeah, who yeah. the contractors are, uh-huh. but politicians care who the contractors are.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so, it's, so, it's 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 really going to affect them more than the guy or 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 gal behind the wheel. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, but in the bigger picture, and I think this is what you were starting to allude to, as you've pointed out, for example, in your Tallahassee takeover podcast. This is about more than just maintaining toll roads. Should we look at this as another chapter in the Republican-led state government's crusade to preempt local government in Florida these days? I It, it is. It okay. is it, it is it is a continuation
3: of that. Um, you know, in, in its original form, Miami-Dade County did clearly have the authority here. They were making decisions, whether they were good decisions or bad decisions, it's not my place to say and the state was very upset with it and the state just moved in and said, no, we're, we're taking it over. And, and in this case, the state originally gave it to them and they're taking it back. Yeah, and I, I, I wanna
0: ask you about that in, in just a second, yeah.
3: Right, but but the it, it is a, a power play. It's a raw power play and, and there's some territorialism from local government. They're saying, we don't wanna give it back. We don't want the state to do this because we're doing it now. Yeah. And the state's taking the position, well, you're doing
0: it bad, so we'll do it better. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about our local toll roads returning to state oversight and why that matters to you, if at all. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. But Danny, as much as we may fret about state takeover of local government functions in Florida these days, when it comes to Miami-Dade's toll roads, The reality is that the state did originally control them, as you you just pointed out, and it it ceded that control to the county in 1994. But then, is it fair to say that the county sort of screwed up and reopened the door to the state's retakeover? I I mean, what I'm getting at, is there a lesson in this for Florida's local governments and how to avoid state preemption? (laughs) Um,
3: In Yes, I think there is a lesson, and a very important lesson in this is, if you're going to argue that the local government needs to have control, a, a, a very key part of that equation is having public support, uh-huh. have, having local public support. When MDX did these rule, these these changes, they increased the the tolls, um, and put these new lanes in. People were really angry at MDX. There's not going to be, I don't predict, rallies of people saying, hey, state, stay out of this. It's, you know, the point is, if you want to keep local rule, you better
0: have local people having your back. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. essentially. Right. So we've got Carlos um, on the line and he uh, is is calling with this idea of roll back tolls advocacy groups. Um, Carlos, what are you getting at there? You're calling from Kendall. Welcome.
4: Yes, uh, thank you for having me on your program. Yeah, uh, my group has been called Rollback Tolls. We're a local activist group, and we were the group that actually bought all the people in 2014 to MDX. There had never been so many people in the boardroom and so many TV cameras in the boardroom because we bought the awareness of the toll rate increases. Our concern with this takeover by the state is that uh, money will be siphoned out of Miami-Dade, as it is already in many other cases, taxes and and fees and whatnot. And uh, we're going to lose local control. As as much as people don't like uh, MDX, um, I think they're going to dislike the concept of GMX even more because uh, I think the conditions of the toll roads will be worsened and the money that we pay on the roads will be siphoned out to Tallahassee and other parts of the state. Okay. And uh, that's the whole purpose
0: of MDX. All right. Well, the money local. Thanks very much, Carlos. I appreciate that, Danny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, to his point, t- to, to Carlos's point, this is
3: that that is why MDX was created in the first place, because in in the early 90s, a lot of the toll money that was being collected locally was paying for roads that were built in other parts of the state. So right. so Miami-Dade County became a donor county where our money was being taken and paying for for other places GMX is not supposed to be engaging in that to technically by 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 how it's like, written it's the okay. the greater Miami expressway Authority that's not supposed to happen there are fears in some ways that they could find a mechanism to still engage in some of that um but to, to Carlos's other point I mean when when then representative Brian Avila introduced this in in 2019 the original takeover what he said he wanted to do is, Look, they still, have, they still owe money for some of these things. They need to pay for the bonds. The only mm-hmm. way to do that is through tolls. So they're going to have to keep tolls. But the end goal that he said is they want to be able to get to a place to phase out some of these tolls,
0: Okay. just yeah. phase them out at some point. Now, really quick, two last points that I think we need to address. Another issue at play here now is where does this leave the new Kendall Parkway through West Miami Day that MDX had been pushing? Yeah. I mean, the
3: the the chair of the of of MDX, some county commissioners, um, they have brought that up and say it and said, you know, MDX as an authority, as the county commission, we were moving forward with this. They were going to do this It's an incredibly controversial project, by the way. Exactly. I mean, U.S. Republican Senator Marco Rubio opposed it. Miami-Dade Democratic Mayor Daniela Levine Cava opposed it tons of environmental groups opposed it mm-hmm. you're talking about a billion dollar project that um, you know traffic studies have shown will shave about six minutes off of a commute yeah um, so there is real questions about mm-hmm. if it should should go forward the 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 state might or might not do it
0: now just really quickly Danny then this is not a completely done deal right the, this court battle between MDX and the state is ongoing. Right, um, so, so, what happened recently is the the state
3: lost a preliminary injunction, essentially. Yeah. um the, and they are still in court. They're still fighting this battle, and there's a court hearing and an appeals court about two weeks from now. yeah, and so, but the 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 trick is what they're battling about was the original takeover. And now they added that little dirt road that we were talking right, about. Right. The, and and the, there's separate challenges that are coming right. on that pipeline. So even if the county wins, if Miami, if MDX wins on this one, mm-hmm. th- this is still going to be a
0: battle for, All for right. a while. So lots of twists and turns to come. Danny Rivero is WLRN investigative reporter. Thanks as always, Danny. Thanks, Tim. Still to come, Nicaragua's dictatorship outlaws the Jesuits. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We've known for months, if not years, that democracy in Nicaragua is all but dead. But this week, left-wing Nicaraguan ruler Daniel Ortega decided to leave no trace of doubt that his poor Central American country is in the iron fist of a full-fledged dictatorship. Ortega outlawed the prominent Roman Catholic order of priests known as the Jesuits and seized their property, including the independent Central American university they run, known as the UCA. The Jesuits, by the way, are the same priestly order that Pope Francis belongs to. And to many Nicaraguans, both there and here in the large Miami diaspora, the Jesuits symbolized a last sanctuary of free thought in their country. As a result, seeing them banished feels like a final gut punch to Nicaragua's democracy. Here's how one Nicaraguan expat activist in Miami, Carla Rosalina Mendoza, put it to me yesterday.
3: There is zero democracy now the dictatorship they want to continue silencing everybody that believe they still have some freedom of speech they want to brainwash everybody and they don't have any tolerance for anybody that can think other than
0: the way they want them to think What do you think about Ortega's Jesuit ban in Nicaragua? Can democracy still be salvaged there? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Nicaraguan community leader and Miami-Dade College economics professor Francisco Larios. He's speaking with us from Mexico City, where he's presenting his new book, whose title in English is Against Power, Nicaragua and the Fight for Freedom in Latin America. Welcome, Francisco.
5: Thank you very much for having me,
0: Francisco. We know that Daniel Ortega has been at war with the Roman Catholic Church in Nicaragua for some time now. In fact, he recently sentenced one of the country's most popular Catholic bishops, Rolando Alvarez, to 26 years in prison. But why did he take this radical step of outlawing the Jesuit priests and seizing the university?
5: Um, We are facing a regime that uh, Cannot, it, it cannot possibly evolve into uh, democracy. And so they are uh, under pressure because the economic system doesn't work anymore for the for the, for the majority of the people. Um, they don't have a future and they know it. And they actually move forward with ways in which they think they can establish a monopoly of ideas, of thoughts uh of thought and also control places where traditionally rebellion is organized schools universities right um like like from from the church from the uca where Mm -hmm. you know famously there were lots of people who actually fought alongside them uh, alongside the FSln back in the seventies, right, mean, meaning the Sandinistas, okay. and I want to get the to same, that. Well, yeah, and I want to yeah.
0: get to, to that right now. But but this is essentially, to you, to your mind, then sort of a desperation move by Ortega to to protect his dictatorship.
5: It, it well, I'm saying that it is part of a strategy whereby they control different power sources in the country in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they um, actually put pressure on their allies, the big money allies, the oligarchy, in one way. They actually make sure that whoever can rebel against them from the church uh, is suppressed, uh, right. which is the church is not uniform in their in their in their opposition to Ortega. Let's remember that the right. the cardinal cardinal of the church is actually right. is aligned with the regime. And and, right. and, and I want to but, I
0: want to get to that point a little uh, in, in 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 a minute. But but going back to the point you were making that there's an irony in Ortega's attack on the Jesuits because you and I as as you and I discussed earlier this week. The Jesuits mm-hmm. were actually a help to Ortega when he first came to power in Nicaragua way back in 1979, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually,
5: Ortega is a very shrewd builder of power, patiently weaving uh, the, you know, the, his personal and his clan's power through, throughout time. And, and sadly, I have to say that most of the political class, most of the higher echelons of the economy, uh, you know, have had at some point contributed to the creation of this monster. Even the Jesuits, even the church uh, back 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 in those
0: days. Yeah. Mm Not, not not just back in those
5: right, days, right? and, you know, I, and even I, recently, yeah. even mm-hmm. recently, from two thousand right, and six, right? But I, I'm just
0: talking specifically here, Francesco, about that that period back in, in when 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 Ortega and the Sandinista guerrillas overthrew the brutal right wing dictatorship of the Somosas mm-hmm. back in nineteen seventy nine, and the yeah. Jesuits were a help to him back then. In fact, a Nicaraguan Jesuit actually joined Ortega's cabinet when when he when he was governing uh, Nicaragua. Yeah.
5: Absolutely, no, no, no. That 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 is true. Uh, we can't paint them with the one brush stroke because there were, uh, you know, jests of different uh, opinions. But you can actually see clearly that there was, a, 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 I think, a dominant trend among them to support right. the, the 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 Frente Sandinista back right. in the seventies. And in fact, as you point out in in your in a recent note, uh, in nineteen ninety, right? right uh-huh. They actually they actually gave. Uh, UCA gave Daniel Ortega a doctorate an honor, honorary, an caso, honorary right?
0: doctorate, right?
5: Honorary doctorate, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, in 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 a way, um, uh, the the pure victims in in this tragedy of Nicaragua are the completely vulnerable and poor people who have no say in, 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 in no say in the politics of the country, right? Uh, they're, they're excluded, but you know the the upper the upper class. Uh, The the upper echelons of the uh, intellectual uh, classes and uh, and, and everyone that has the ability to influence society, they all have a share of guilt in what is going on right now. Right. And as Um, you
0: point out, what matters here is the poor, the average Nicaraguan. And in a way, then I mean that that's reflected in the fact that fast forward to 2006, 17 years ago, when Ortega won Nicaragua's presidency again, and this time the Jesuits didn't seem so enthusiastic about his rule anymore, right?
5: Well, uh, let's remember that Ortega won that presidency with uh, you know less than 38 percent of the vote, uh, thanks to a pact that he. Uh, and Arnoldo Le entered into uh, so, and the division of the anti-Sandinista opposition parties. So he was he entered government in a minority position and he has been grabbing power
0: illegally since then. Exactly. Uh, And that was the sort of thing that that illegal power grab that turning Nicaragua into dictatorship this time the, the Jesuits weren't buying it. I mean, this this time the Jesuits were not on his side uh, as as he began consolidating his dictatorial power. This time, right?
5: No, not openly. I mean, there yep. may have been some Jesuits that might have uh, you know uh, been sympathetic or uh, helped, but uh, there was no uh, you know visible uh, support from the Jesuits as as a. As a as an organization within the church.
0: Right. And, and 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 Ortega was obviously not happy about that. But I mean, what effect does it have on Nicaragua and the democracy movement there now, Francisco, to have the Ortega dictatorship outlaw the Jesuits and take over the Central American University?
5: This only makes it clear to those who are still talking, uh, believe it or not, about dialogue and uh, going to elections with Ortega, That really leaves them in a very bad position because how are they going to explain to people now uh, that that while they continue to uh, insist that we really don't have to mount a belligerent movement within Nicaragua to overthrow the government and instead we have to wait for the U.S. and the international community to give us the the opening for an election, Mm -hmm. Ortega continues to advance relentlessly uh, against any a potential source of uh, mm-hmm. dissidents, you know of, of different uh, ideas yeah. and he knows uh, that um that this is you know universities are you know very important uh, places for opposition uh for uh, right. uh, in, in 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 nicaragua and mm-hmm. in latin america
2: right
5: uh and i the one thing that i will say though is that these attempts may actually buy him time but sooner or later the cracks in the p- power system of Nicaragua, the cracks in the e- economy, the cracks in society are so oh. deep that it doesn't matter what he does. Right, uh, the country is going to go to more turmoil, and eventually they will be gone. Because I... The system is unsustainable,
0: right? I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Nicaragua's dictatorship and the Jesuits being outlawed there. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, real quickly, Francisco, as you were pointing out before, the, the Catholic church hierarchy in Nicaragua bears some of the blame for early on, at least helping Ortega consolidate his power in Nicaragua, no? Absolutely,
5: no. Not only did the uh, uh, previous Cardinal agreed with Ortega uh, in exchange for banning uh, all abortion laws right banning right. banning abortion I'm glad you
0: pointed it out because uh, right. that that, yeah. that 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 with the, the, the church helped ortega because of that and then that helped ortega uh, consolidate right. his power as we have said
5: and then and then the present cardinal is is clearly on the side of ortega right he has remained silent even as ortega has attacked uh the you know the, a priest and has exiled a, a bishop and has uh, sent another one uh, to jail, uh, the church uh, it, it is per- persecuted and he doesn't say much, he doesn't say anything. Right. Uh, and in fact, I have to say that most of the bishops in the co- Episcopal Conference, that's the, the, the name of the institution that governs the, the church in Nicaragua, remain silent. Uh, the a hierarchy, the, the members mm-hmm. of the hierarchy that are in opposition to, to Ortega are the exception rather than the rule. Right. And we know their names, Monsignor right. Baez and, and, uh-huh. and Alvarez, etc.
0: Now, in, in, in the last minute we have here, Francisco, the, the Biden administration has responded by slapping sanctions, including a ban on travel to the U.S. on 100 municipal officials in Nicaragua who back Ortega and are accused of human rights violations. But at this point, Can sanctions like this have much of an effect in bringing down the Ortega regime? This is
5: and it has been from the beginning political theater. Uh, Sadly, uh, the United States uh, hasn't done what it can do to actually help uh, the uh, the Nicaraguans get rid of Ortega. And it is coming to a, a very sad and uh twist in the in, in our in the, in the history of our relationship between the, the two countries in which there is a, a despot in Nicaragua and the United States uh pretty much accepts the existence of this person on them in the name of stability right so they right. sacrifice human rights for what they perceive to be their well. uh, stability interests
0: we'll have to leave it there francisco thank you francisco larios is a nicaraguan community leader and a miami-dade college economics professor francisco thank you and safe travels thank you very much finally on the roundup saying goodbye to lolita since 1970 when she was four years old toki the orca or killer whale better known as lolita was a beloved attraction at the miami Seaquarium. She virtually welcomed my two young children to Miami when we arrived here in 1999. This year, the aquarium and the Friends of Toki organization made plans to return Lolita to her native waters in the Pacific Northwest. But sadly, before that could happen, she died here last Friday of an apparent kidney condition at the age of 57, relatively young for a killer whale. With her death has also come a lot of questions about whether keeping killer whales like Lolita in that kind of lengthy captivity is humane. As Friends of, to- of Toki co-founder Charles Vinnick told Seattle station King TV.
4: The arc of her story given its 53
0: years of captivity is from those days of when so many people didn't think there was anything wrong with capturing a whale to now it's no longer accepted,
2: not only not to capture them, the whole industry is changing.
0: Either way, the plan now is to take Lolita's cremated remains to the Native American Lummi Nation in Washington State, which claims her as family. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen, Katie Munoz is our director of original Live Programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. messi, Obrigado. WLRN Public Media. You're tuned to 91.3 WLRN and HD1, Miami, Fort Lauderdale,